Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerd Out Recaps, His Dark Materials with Peter Segal. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And we are joined by Peter Segal. And I am glad that the notional demon that I chose for myself, which was a miniature donkey. Uh-huh. For those of us who For those forgotten. of us who don't remember, <laughs> uh, is large enough to uh, not be easily crushed. <laughs> okay. I've Got been it. thinking a lot Got about it. that. Yeah. About like the yeah. vast, uh, you know, unfairness of yeah, having a small a crushable demon. fragile yeah, demon. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'd leave the house if my demon if my demon were like an ant. I think every time I look at you now, I picture your demon, to be honest here. I don't think I could forget what your demon is at this juncture. <laughs> Myself and my demon are slightly insulted. <laughs> All right. So today we are recapping <laughs> season one, episode two <laughs> of His Dark Materials. This it donkey called... sounds a lot like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> It was called The Idea of the North, and oh my God, it blew my mind. I don't know what y'all thought. Yeah, absolutely. I have a feeling as this develops, because this is fun, because we didn't watch the show before we decided to recap it. Right. And it may well be that as we go through this TV show, in contrast to the last one, that our positions here might be reversed, because you seem really enthusiastic. I know. I'm like, "Mm, well, the fact that you're like kind of middling, fair to middling on it, I'm very enthusiastic, and Trisha can't Google anything. I was describing it to a friend and she was like, oh, you've all just moved one seat to the left. Like, yes. We've all just like <laughs> in a weird slightly way. shifted Strange roles. rotation around the notional table. <laughs> I think it's kind of delightful. I don't like my new chair. <laughs> <laughs> you hate it because it has no keyboard in front of it. I think what was so exciting was, I, maybe we should just wait till we get there. Should we kind of like go through sort of the main linear beats until the part that blew everybody's mind yesterday? Sure. Let's do it. Okay, so everybody's is a stretch, but go on. Everybody's because the fact stretch. that I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> might be indicative of the fact that I may not agree Slightly with you that it was problematic, <laughs> objectively mind blowing. But go on. Okay, so Lyra's with Mrs. Coulter. Yes, she wants to find Roger still. Mrs. Much Coulter so. is being cagey about it, and. Mrs. Coulter takes her out to lunch. They go to the Arctic Institute. Lyra's obviously very excited about the armored bear skull oh, yeah. and all the other cool stuff. Did you notice that really cool kind of a globe section they had showing the top of the earth? I thought that was pretty cool in the center of the Arctic Institute. Props to the art department on that one. Yeah, that was very cool. Um, I feel like there are a lot of establishing scenes in this episode with Lyra and Mrs. Coulter around whether or not Mrs. Coulter is trustworthy. Right. And there's that kind of intense bath scene. Yes. Yeah. Especially with Mrs. Coulter, like, looking very haunted next to the bath. Yes. And then we have uh, Lyra and Pantalaemon talking pretty much right after that. Let's listen to it. We shouldn't change just so we can fit in here. She's being very kind to us, Pan. She's nice. She treats me nice. We deserve to have nice things. For once. Of course we do. No one's ever said I could be extraordinary before. 
So I kind of loved that scene because I think I'm just going to love everything about this stupid show. Trisha, you and I chatted very briefly before this and hinted that you were less impressed with that. I felt like a lot of the dialogue that Lyra had was just a little too on the nose. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's bound to happen when everyone has an inner monologue that is an animal. It is really helpful that there's at least a person or an animal that she can talk like because otherwise I feel like it would be very on the nose, right? right? If she's just like talking to herself in the mirror or something. Yeah. Although, and, yeah. We, and we talked about last time how incredibly, like, weirdly attractive that notion is that you always have someone around you can discuss your most intimate feelings with and they'll, and they'll discuss them with you with no judgment. It's very nice. Um, yeah, and it is, a, but I, I've been thinking a lot about the character of Lyra and, and I, th- I still think Daphne Keene is great. Um, but she's a, she's a frustrating character, but I think it's because she's in many ways a realistic child. Mm. So, for example, Mrs. Coulter is obviously a villain. Yeah. We know this. Right. Especially by the end of this episode. Partially because we've already seen her interacting with the stolen children. We know that she's behind it. But it it also makes sense to me that a child would not see how evil she was, particularly in all the things that Mrs. Coulter gives her. It tells her she's special, gives her, as she says, nice things, because it turns out that running around and being a ragamuffin is not all that fun. When maybe you'd like, you know, a clean set of clothes. I don't know. This is also, though, where I was like, wait a minute. Why does Lyra care about these things? Like, what what reference point does she have for these being important or good things? Dresses and fancy things. Yeah. Like, why does she even want those if she's grown up around men in a library, basically? Like, that sounds like so much more fun to me than Mrs. Coulter's Trump Tower apartment. (laughs) I would much rather be in Jordan College than that terrible woman's apartment. The Trump Tower thing is an interesting reference because I do feel like Mrs. Coulter, like, the whole point of her is that she's sort of gilded, but yes. that it's skin deep, right? And that, and I could see being a little kid and growing up in a drab world and like seeing some shiny things and being temporarily allured by them. But I feel like she realizes pretty quickly that like it's all a very thin veneer. Yeah. I wonder about her nature, the nature of her evil. Mrs. Coulter. Mrs. Coulter. I mean, she's evil. Right. But... We don't know yet why she's doing what she's doing. And partially it's because as viewers of the TV show, we don't know what dust is. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the oblation board wants. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they're trying to do. And thus, it's very hard to understand what her um, motivation is other than the kidnapping and emotional, so far just emotional, torture of children. Well, oh yeah, of the children. Yeah. And and whatever she wants Lyra for. Although... To me, more than the bath, the most important scene in the relationship between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra was the one where she spits out, and he's a terrible father in regard yeah, to Lord Azrael. Yeah, yes, right? yes. Which is a big reveal, actually. Yeah, and much earlier in the TV show than it is in the book, right? Much earlier. Yeah, that's not towards the end. Yeah. Not till towards the end that you figure that out. And Trisha, were you surprised by that? I was because I didn't see that coming both narratively and I also then had a moment where I was like is is Mrs. Coulter her mother like are they the estranged explorer parents and then I, I shook that notion aside but you know the idea that somebody shouts that loudly about somebody being a terrible father usually they have skin in the game mm-hmm. and I was like why does Mrs. Coulter care so much about Lord Asriel? Like, what is their backstory? Is I'm a there, little confused. Is there enough for you to care about Lord Asriel either? Like, is the reveal too soon in terms of, like, is he a more or less irrelevant character for someone who hasn't read the books? Um, I mean, I think because James McAvoy is so good, 
Yeah. I'm assuming that he's more important. But yeah, we've had very little screen time and in interaction with him in this role. And it's very unclear how much interaction he's had with Lyra. Like they're right. They're close in that they're family, apparently. Well, and they keep but talking about. he's been about... gone for a year at a time, it right. seems like. Yeah. Well, and the fact that they mentioned it, that Mrs. Coulter mentioned again the whole Great Flood thing, I thought was interesting, too, because right. they are, especially given the fact that that didn't happen in the original book series. Yeah. Why like, do they keep referencing He it? brought you to Jordan. He's the one who made sure a scholastic sanctuary. Yeah. Let's, can we listen to another scene that I think also speaks to the slightly earlier really I feel like the point where Lyra and Mrs. Coulter are talking about dust it's it's very clear to me that Lyra is starting to test Mrs. Coulter in terms of how much information she can get out of her right. and whether or not she's trustworthy now the thing about electrons is that they are, they are negatively charged particles sort of like dust but dust might not be charged dust you know from space dust that dust you see, I do know some things. What do you know about dust, Lyra? It comes from space. It lights people up if you have a special camera to see it by. And, ah, oh yes, it doesn't affect children. Ah. Was that little noise, was that, I may not have noticed that I read it in a Vulture recap, was that Mrs. Coulter, like, squeezing the fur of her demon? Was that the monkey going, ow? It's, it is the monkey making a noise. I don't know if it's a pain noise or just like a stress noise. Yeah. But it, yeah. And that another moment of, I, I'm sorry, we're taking away from what you wanted to talk no, about. No, no, but no. the moment where Mrs. Coulter whacks her own demon yeah. was like, wait a minute. Yeah. That's yeah. not supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I there were a couple of moments in this episode and in the first episode too, actually, that I thought were really interesting because like the they do really rely heavily on the demons interacting and not the people. But like, you know where the people stand because of the way their demons are behaving. Right. You know, like even in the bath scene, Pantalaemon looks pretty skeptical and kind of weirded out by the whole thing. Yeah. And I just think it's really interesting how, like, I feel like they're managing to pull that off pretty well, given the fact that it's like a pretty strange constraint. You know? I, I thought that this episode did a better job of showing, for lack of a better word, the interaction of people to people, demon to demon, and person to demon than mm-hmm. we had seen before. Mm-hmm. Especially in that very harrowing scene in which the monkey goes after uh, yeah, Pantalema. Yeah, that was extremely intense. But you brought up that scene, and why did you bring it up? Well, I brought it up because obviously dust is an important thing. Uh, and I thought it was interesting because obviously Lyra's fascinated by it since seeing this presentation that her uncle now father gave right and she wants it seems like she wants to get to the bottom of it but she's also realizing that maybe she shouldn't trust mrs coulter and so she's she's challenging her by telling her how much she knows and wanting to know more essentially right 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 yeah there's a lot it occurs to me that there's so much and this i'm going to turn to trisha to ask if it bothers you there's so much that we don't know right that we as the viewer are in a position of ignorance, especially if you haven't yeah. read the book. We don't know yeah. what dust is. We don't really know what the oblation board is. We don't know what Mrs. Coulter is doing. We don't know what she wants. We don't know what this whole plot with the children is. We don't know what Lord Azrael is up to. And we don't know what dust is. 
right? So there's you all said these. That twice. I did. <laughs> it's very important. You I worked my way around. You started. With I started dust with dust, and, and I worked. Which is kind of how dust works. By the time I got to the end of my list, I had From forgotten dust. where it started. None to dust. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Greta, they don't know what dust is. Nobody so. cares, but it never really stops him. His feet are still fucking talking. <laughs> but what about? But what dust? about the dust? And the point is, is I'm wondering, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not like where you are in this TV series yet. Are there too many mysteries? Are, are, are we ending up at this point, episode two, just watching a bunch of people doing things, but we don't know why they're doing them? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's thus kind of hard for us to care. I mean, I, go ahead. Well, I, I, to that point, Peter, I think that it's a little interesting. If this was just a movie and all those mysteries were unfolding because we were spending, if not the entire story, nearly the entire story, in the point of view of Lyra, which then is how I the understand, books are. right? So then I would understand why there's so much mystery because I am taking the sort of point of view of a 12 year old who doesn't get to know what the grown ups are saying unless you listen at the door and doesn't have all this backstory and information. But the show is not doing that. The show is giving us many scenes and instances where adults are talking to each other in a very explanatory way. They're just choosing what to explain and what not to. So whereas it works in the book to have this slowly unfolding mystery from the point of view of a single character, the TV show, it feels much more manipulative when they give us information when they don't, because there are a half dozen at least adult characters at this point who we've seen in scenes without Lyra, where she's nowhere to be seen or heard. And then it's like, well, then... Why are you telling us X but not Y and Z but not B? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm finding that a little a little confusing for sure. I also think Mrs. Coulter in this episode is much less evil to me, actually, and much sadder. Yes. Mm, I mean, yeah. that first scene, which we kind of skipped over, where she says she doesn't oh, like heights because heights. she always thinks about jumping. Yeah. She's basically admitting to being suicidal to the 12-year-old she just invited to live in her house, which is a strange move. Yeah. And, as and the, very dark. And as the vulture uh, recap I read this morning indicated that when she whacks her demon out of frustration, it is literally an act of self-harm. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's right. like, I don't know. If that's really a demon and if she's really a person from that world, oh, which I'm skeptical of. Really? And then there's the whole thing with Lord Boreal, who I had to look up who he was. And that's the that's the sort of official from the Magisterium. The dude with the snake demon. The dude with the snake demon who yeah. com- first comes to back to uh, Jordan College and then amazingly to me. Yes. That's the scene I'm talking about. Oh. When okay. he goes into what we'll call our Oxford. Yeah. Like – that there is no indication that there's any like coexistence with quote unquote real life until book two of the series. Exactly. And that's a huge. So that completely that, blew my And that's when I got very excited. I think yeah. you too, Trisha, right? That's when you were like, yeah. oh, this is interesting. Okay. Tell me why. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me because I've read the books and I know that our world eventually plays a role. But why was it so amazing to you guys? Uh, I thought it was amazing because I feel like especially in the first, like pretty much leading up to that scene in the first 15 or 20 minutes of this episode, I was sort of like, I wonder if this was actually a bad choice to recap because it's based on the books. Like I thought it would give us a lot of conversation to kind of, we'd be able to sort of like compare it to the source material, which I thought would make for a more interesting conversation. As we did with that other TV show. Exactly. But then I was sort of like, well, shit, if it's just exactly like the books, like maybe there's not actually a whole lot, you know, maybe it's just like Trisha asking questions about Miss, Mrs. Coulter and where she's from and what, and what dust is and me like 
be feeling really smug in the corner over here. Right. And not, and not wanting to say anything, you know, right. Yeah. Which is like, maybe not a super compelling conversation, but then that happened and I was completely surprised. Right. And then I was like, Oh shit, this is going to be great. Cause what it means to me is that they're sticking with the story in the books, but they're reframing it all so that it's more compelling TV. And it's not all just from Lyra's point of view. Right. And that's fucking exciting. Oh, I'm glad you think so. What do you think, Trisha? Why did you find that so interesting? Well, one, you know, I love a good world-jumping multiverse story. So in general, I just find the more sort of science fiction-y something can get, mm-hmm. the more excited I am. Um, I like the fantasy side of it, too, but the sci-fi is really more my wheelhouse. So right. that was fun. And I, you know, I had picked up it from bits and pieces that that's where we were headed, but I thought it might take us a very long time to get yes, there. Yes, I thought it was going to take us a very long time to get there. Yeah. And just the permeability of it, that somebody could basically walk through just sort of the shimmer um, yeah. makes it interesting to me because it, it's clear that like that it's not a super controlled thing. It wasn't like he went into a very official place right. in that very fancy building yep. and that's how he did it. It was just sort of like an abandoned mossy he, like, sort found of greenhouse. This weird hole. Yeah, which makes me think that they don't have control over these borders, so to speak, that people can be coming and going and going back and forth and causing all kinds of mayhem or trying to help. And there's not a sort of official list of who has the power to go between worlds. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to hear both of you talk about like the slowness of the reveals, because I actually think that we've gotten through a lot and we have a lot of reveals already, especially like the whole new world thing is huge. And Asriel as her father, too, like those are both those are both secrets that I thought would take much longer to get to. Right. So I don't know. I'm optimistic that like it will keep plugging forward at a good pace but I'm definitely curious in a weird way I was kind of disappointed and I'm trying to figure out why that they front loaded that yeah uh, partially because I remember the the kind of thrill of going into the second book and you realize oh we're in our world yes and then yeah. of course finding that there's a there are doors between them I think it's also because one of the reasons I love the book so much and we've talked about some of them is that I love this alternate universe and yeah. all its elements Yeah. because they, 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 they play to some of my early enthusiasms. This, there's this sort of a whole cyberpunk aspect. Uh-huh. Everything's kind of technological but still high Victorian. Right. It's not electricity as we know it. Right. It's, it's airships and blimps and old-fashioned cars and mechanical instruments and I love all that. And there are all these references in the books to stuff that is sort of historical terms, the Tartars and Skraylings, um, uh, Svalbard itself, mm-hmm. where, which is one of their destinations in the north. That's sort of, it's this wonderful, um, I don't know, clockwork world that I loved. And I was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to see that guy with a smartphone. <laughs> you know, I, I, and all of a sudden I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit like when they, um, very late in the, in the Harry Potter movies, when they, they leave Hogwarts, the Wizarding World, and they all of a sudden in modern London. Uh-huh. And it's okay by that time, but you, it would have been very frustrating to, like, in the middle of the first Harry Potter book or movie, maybe, yeah. to all of a sudden have a scene back in the real world. Because, like, no, I don't want to be there. I want to be in this yeah. very cool world that we're yeah. still exploring. Yeah. One exception, which is that really, Hogwarts, always quill and ink. We don't get to have a fountain pen. Come on. Yeah, that is a little a little strange. <laughs> Writing your homework with a quill and ink always just seems so laborious to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The, the smartphone is a funny thing to see because even in the original conceit of the books, right, smartphones wouldn't have existed yeah. quite yet. Yeah, no. And I do think that a smartphone is the telltale sign that you are in modern day, right? Yeah. 
because it's the the most immediately recognizable thing that just like has that clear timestamp. Like, oh no, that's a today phone. That's like a Samsung Galaxy. How many times (laughs) this happens to me all the time when I'm watching a film or a TV show, especially if it's set in contemporary day, and they're just sort of sitting there and staring off into space, and for whatever reason, maybe they're contemplating, maybe they're waiting, and I always say to myself, well, why aren't they staring at their why smartphone? Aren't they on like Twitter? everybody in the real world, like yeah. everybody in the train in today, literally 100% of the people in that train were staring at their smartphones. So it's almost as if that, that classic contemplative shot of some character staring into space is no longer valid in a weird Because we way. just don't... Because nobody just stares into space anymore. Think Al- the way we used to. Albeit we should. Right. Yeah, maybe it's just aspiring to a higher function of humanity. Right. True. You know? But I'm getting off topic. Back to <laughs> it. So one thread that we haven't quite grabbed onto yet is the Egyptians, who right. have also made it to London, have been looking around... Mm-hmm. They found a place where it seems like the kids were because yeah. they even found little Billy Costa's sweater. Yeah. Aww. And and so it seems like they're on the trail. Right. But they've lost it. But they've lost it. And yeah. I, I'm almost glad I don't remember the books because I don't, for example, remember if the Egyptians continue to follow the children and head to the north with them. I don't remember. And it'll be fun to find out. I will also say because I've been so obsessed with them get capturing the feel of people wandering around with animals all the time uh-huh. that I kind of liked that sequence for that reason where the Egyptians try to raid the place because there's that moment where they're sort of all holding their demons and they sort of release their demons yeah, to all help the, birds. the attack. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's mostly working. Yeah. Like, it's I working s- better. I could see that being a very complicated thing to try to pull off well because it's just like, okay, now everybody's got these weird ass animals yeah. all the time. And there are still scenes where I'm like, where is everybody's demon? But <laughs> As much as I was maybe a little down on the deterministic way that the animal is chosen for the demon, I am now pretty glad that I can just immediately see that if somebody has a bug demon, yeah. then they're a creepazoid. Like, it's kind of nice to be able to see someone's soul in that way. But the young journalist had a bug demon, and she seemed nice. Like Rita Skeeter. Yeah. Ooh. I don't trust any bugs. I don't care if it's a pretty bug. Yeah. Well, you're just getting freaked out by that one guy with the bug crawling on his face all the time. Yeah, that was totally weird. for sure. Yeah, it was totally yeah. for sure. I, 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 as much as I admired some of the scenes with demons, I thought the scene where uh, Lord Boreal kills him, kills that journalist by crushing her little butterfly moth, yeah, whatever it was, butterfly, I think, was really poorly handled because you don't even get you just sort of see her slump in the background. The other thing, this might be like too book nerdy to matter, but. When you die, your demon disappears. Right. And he was still holding on to the bug. Yeah. Onto the butterfly. It, that's exactly what I mean. Which made me think that maybe he didn't actually kill her, but just like create, like it, cause. Yeah. The, the, in, there's, a, know, there's a whole question of like if your demon is your external soul, then what happens when people touch it? If it's killed, can the demon be independently killed? Is it a physical being? You know, in any or is it some sort of magical being that is immune to certain physical forces? Yeah, like I don't think you can be killed through your demon, but I don't. Maybe yeah, like I what know. if, like you know, but if you are, then your demon would disappear, which right. is the part that made that scene confusing. What happens if your demon gets a tail caught in a door? Do you? Does the demon scream? Do you scream? You both scream. Right. I uh, think. Yeah. I mean, so like, is it? Lyra does say you're hurting us. You're yes. hurting us. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you that was an pain. that was an attack by a demon on her demon. And I'm willing to say, yes. okay, yes, demons interact with Which each is other. Less perverse. Like, like that's allowed yeah. for people to sort of like work out their tension yeah. with demons. Like Which, we all have pets, and pets sometimes get into trouble. And I mean, d- d- are demons 
are demons, like, does a demon never get its tail caught in a door because a demon is a magical being? This just doesn't do that. It wouldn't happen. Or are they, are they, that scene seemed to indicate that if you could just catch somebody's demon in your hand and it's small enough, you can crush it and kill them, which seemed poorly thought out by whoever came up yeah. with this demon stuff, yeah. you know, this demon idea. Yeah, that part yeah. threw me off a little. And, and what, it, what, I don't, you don't know what the journalist went through when he touched her demon. You don't know what it was like for her to have her soul be crushed. I mean, it seemed like that yeah. was a moment for some cinema. And instead, we just got his fist in the foreground and in her the vague form. And she kind of slumps yeah. over. Yeah. Which, I, I, and as Trish points out, it seemed almost so pointedly ambiguous that maybe she's not really dead. Maybe we're supposed to, we're going to find out later what really happened. Yeah. yeah. I read it as her being knocked out cold. Yeah. Yes. I think that's more what it was, is that it was just like a shocking experience to have someone else touch her demon and it was excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Although even that was unclear. She went, oh. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that was quite strange. I'm worrying too much about the logistics <laughs> of demons. I admit that. <laughs> well, I think it's, I mean, somebody asked us on Twitter if like the conservation of mass applies to shifting demons. Yeah, that's so, exactly. I mean, you're not the only one. You mean, you know, if it can, can pantalemon always turns into animals more or less the same size within a range. Maybe it goes yeah. from like a two pound little weasel to a four pound little something else. Yeah. But and he it, likes those oblong shapes. Yes, he does. Shapes. But can he become an elephant? Can he become a gazelle? Can he become something much, much larger? And that all brings up the whole thing. Are, to what extent are demons real? Can You can see them. They have physical effects. You can touch them if they're yours. And apparently other demons can touch your demon. And now we know other humans can touch your demon. But yeah. it's, it's all – I don't know why I'm so worried about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean, I do think real. that Pan could – ostensibly have turned into a much larger and scarier creature when fighting the monkey, right? Because the monkey is a monkey 100% yes, of the time. Yes, the monkey's fixed. Yes. And so instead of becoming like a house cat, they could have become a cougar and won more easily. You, 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 but... you, you immediately um, propose a, a an infinite uh, arms race escalation in <laughs> demon fights. <laughs> Pretty soon you've got like within four minutes you got two tyrannosaurs going after each other in the middle of your living room. Oh yeah, again well, no, with the only dinosaur if it's two kids. <laughs> but the thing is, I like I wonder how much of that is because of the nature of the people who the demons are connected to, right? Like they're inherently not as aggressive as right. Mrs. Coulter exactly. and that monkey. Yeah. In which case, like Pan wouldn't change to something more horrible. Because Pan can't really escape the confines of the person to whom exactly, yeah. He is Pan's a demon. But if Lyra is super powerful horrible. and kind of badass, then why can't Pan be more badass? Because she's not as badass as Mrs. Coulter. Because she, she's yeah, mm. she's not badass yet. Yeah, she'll get there. She could be extraordinary. Yeah, is what Mrs. Coulter said. In the world swapping <laughs> scenes, there was the recognition right of. When you do cross between worlds, you have to hide your demon because yes. it's uh, it would be weird. Bugs people, yeah. In the well, I mean, uh, could you imagine universe if yeah. like Peter had just strolled in with a miniature donkey? Everybody would be like, "What the fuck is that?" You'd dude? probably be going him again. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he's like uh, a dude with an osprey that would stand out, right? You know, so yeah. like, it definitely yeah. does uh, bode well that some people have like pocket sized or. Sort of hideable demon, yeah. Otherwise, demons. and so that storyline does that make sense to y'all? That they're like going to look for. Do we know who that person is? Well, so uh, Lord Boreal, who who seems to be right now the principal sort of co-villain along with uh, Mrs. Coulter. So he 
first goes to Jordan College to he wants to look at the He's skull looking for the skull of Grumman. That presumably belonged to this for, the scholar of the college who mm-hmm. had gone prior to Lord Azrael up to the north. And they said, we not, we're not going to show you the skull. It's none of your business. And he goes down to the crypt anyway, and he examines the skull and comes to the determination. It's not really Lord Grumman. Mm-hmm. So then he travels into our world, and he shows his assistant, informant, whoever that is, a picture. Photogram. Of, we presume, Grumman? Yep. And so the, okay. I, so the, the supposition is he's not really dead. They faked his death with a fake skull, and he's actually in this world. And, and for some reason, he already knows that Grumman must be in our right. world. Yes. So he's suspecting this. Very interesting. That's that's my that's my best guess. Do you think we in this world would be less passive aggressive if we had demons to like sort shit out between each other more often? It's possible. I mean, there'd never be a Harold Pinter play because I think it is much harder to hide your real that thoughts and feelings. That is such an interesting place to go. <laughs> Oh, I went and saw The Caretaker the other night. It was four minutes long. <laughs> One guy had a rat, and the rat talked to the cat, and they settled it all out. It turns out this was the relationship was just this. And I, <laughs> I still don't get the joke, but right. I love that you're, it's, you're it's, both there. It's, it's very amusing. Um, <laughs> one, because it was a children's book, there are a lot of questions about demons uh, that I don't remember being addressed. So, for example, if people fall in love— do their demons have to also fall in love? Does that happen? What leads it? Do the demons meet? And, oh, I like this other demon. And there's a, when, when people have sex, what do the demons do? Uh, and there's all these questions about demons that are probably outside the scope of this TV show, but I can't stop thinking about yeah. them. Yeah, well, I will say there are actually a lot of those questions are answered a little bit in The Amber Spyglass, which is the third book of the mm-hmm. original series. Yes. And a lot of them are discussed, some like new versions are discussed in The Secret Commonwealth, which is the second book of the new series, which right. just came out in September and is excellent. Okay. I, I got to get back to reading these because I do should. remember, it's I do really remember that's like the issue of romantic love, I think is addressed. Well, in Boreal's demon is a she, so they don't even have to match gender. Oh, oh they're all, opposite. All demons are opposite. Oh, they're all gender. opposite. Yes. Yeah, uh, every which man is a little a... problematic in a, you know, spectrum of gender universe. Yes. But well, it's pretty heteronormative. It is very heteronormative. But yeah, they're all opposites. Um, yeah. What is it? In the secret commonwealth, a woman talks about her demon falls in love with another woman. Like her demon and, yes, and falls in love with another human. And it's not human. like a sexual love, but it's like a very intense, like it's the kind of like kinship and love affection that she should feel for her person. Whoa. And, or that he should feel for his person, but he feels it for this other woman. And so it's like this whole very strange like uh, I'm just going to say that my immediate, I've never heard this, I haven't read this book, my immediate reaction was going, yeah, it probably happened to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Emotional cheating of yeah. demons. I is know. A yeah, man, that shit is intense, dark. It's, right? It's really, I, I just yeah, yeah, it's very complicated and pretty fascinating and strange. In a minute, we're going to listen to Mrs. Coulter talking to the children who she seems to have imprisoned, which is very creepy. Yes, indeed. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. All right, let's listen to that scene and then we'll talk about it because I feel like that's a big one. I have an announcement to make. We're going to have an adventure together. We're going to go on a voyage the best place you could possibly go to. My mom! 
will be worried. Of course she will. And that's why I'm here. To write a letter for your mother. General Blation Board of London. General Ablation Board of London. And what's the General Ablation Board? I don't know. So creepy. Also, I just want to say in passing, oblation is a great word. Because you don't know exactly what it means, but it sounds bad. Yeah. So, I mean, things are obliterated, but they're not oblated. Oblated sounds worse than obliterate. It almost reminds me of like a very aggressive case in Latin, you know? It's yeah. not the ablative. It's the, it's the ob- ob- oblative. Yeah, it's when, <laughs> when you actually speak words in, in Latin to make the person you're talking to die. <laughs> it's the oblative case. Um, I did allow myself to Google what that word means because that didn't oh, feel good. like cheating what does in it the mean? same way. What does it mean? It means to sacrifice, basically. Oh, oh that's actually very interesting. I didn't know that. Um, did you? I I somehow got kicked out of that scene because these kids have been kidnapped, and we understand that they are. And I say this from their perspective, not mine. Disposable kids. These are kids from the streets. These mm-hmm. are kids who don't have any family. Mm-hmm. That's why they were kidnapped for this project. But even so. It seemed weird to me that they've been in this prison for however many weeks. And this woman says, hey, we're all leaving. We're all going. We're going on an adventure. And all the kids essentially say, okay, as opposed to this universe's version of what the fuck you talking about? I mean, I I thought there'd be more either overt hostility or resistance or some demonstration of why these kids aren't resisting anymore. Yeah, I feel like the books do pull that off better. And there's a little bit of it in here. But, I mean, you know, Mrs. Coulter is sort of this, like— Almost sickly sweet, yes. shiny person who who children are drawn to. You know, it's kind of that like Pied that, Piper yeah. vibe. But one of the problems is, and you tell me if I'm right because it's been years since I read the books, but as I remember, you meet Mrs. Coulter and she seems great. And then she goes and she talks to the kids and she says more or less the same thing. Oh, isn't it wonderful? You guys are going to go on a wonderful adventure. You're all going to love it. And she has them write letters, which is very nice of her. And then she walks and she throws the letters into Mm -hmm. the fire. Mm -hmm. And what I remember is like that's a reveal in the book. Like, oh, boy, she's actually kind of evil. And I don't remember if I'm right, but I but I remember that moment having a lot more dramatic weight than it did in this Hmm. TV show because we've almost I think we've seen it before. I also just am not buying that the kids don't understand that something bad has gone on. Like you were saying, Peter, these kids are too old. They're not three, four, five years old where after a certain amount of time, they might just kind of go like, well, if these people are being nice to me, I guess this is where I live now. Yeah. Like, and even at that age, kids would freak out about that. But they try to escape. Well, especially if it's not that nice, right? It's one thing if they're all chilling in Trump Tower, then I could see how maybe some of them would be like, I mean, this is better than like being a servant at Jordan College. And if these kids are urchins, gyptians, kids who are living on the street, more like, you know, Oliver Twist. Yeah. Street urchins are... Streetwise, pretty young. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they would they wouldn't be like okay. And and there's that almost, there's that scene. And it's funny that you mentioned three to five year olds because that's exactly who you see doing this. Three to five year olds walking down in a line with their hands on each other's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. is such a toddler cl- preschool thing to see. Mm-hmm. And these kids who are much older are just being shown doing that. Yeah. Yeah. They need some JJ Bittenbinder street smarts. Is all I'm saying. Who? <laughs> I thought for sure you would know that reference. I don't know I the don't. reference. Trisha? Oh, it's a John Mulaney stand-up reference oh. to a real oh, Chicago oh, yes. detective. Street smarts. Street smarts. I didn't remember exactly. the name, but I remember the bit. <laughs> yeah, but seriously, like what, what kid who's been living on the street gets snatched? It's, again, not like they were told, 
uh, you know, their parents didn't drop them off there or they didn't sort of like wander in and get like a, a nice hot bowl of soup and then they end up in this situation. They were violently snatched in the middle of the night away yeah, from everything they knew. Yeah, that's very true. Although they Why are, are they okay with this? They are all pointedly pre-puberty. Right. That is a huge thing in yeah. this story because yeah. puberty is when your demon settles. Puberty is when all right. kinds of things, all kind of changes happen. And these kids are before that. So maybe they're just following that. Like, oh, these kids are, 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 are pre-adolescent. Therefore, they're less independent. They're less angry. They're less emotionally volatile, et cetera. But, but Lyra is it. figuring out that Mrs. Coulter, while in Trump Tower, is evil, and these kids can't figure it out when they're in the weird, shabby room. Like, it's just not working for me the way that they're playing Mrs. Coulter. And Lyra, who's supposed to be mm-hmm. the smart one, has figured it out. Yeah, I see. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to sort of come up with a grand unified theory of what exactly we're not buying. And it has something to do with how both obviously evil Mrs. Coulter is now and yet how much sway she seems to have with per- Lyra at points, the kids at other points. It's like, come on, she's, a, she's obviously a villain. Why doesn't anybody react to her that way? Yeah, even in that scene with Roger very pointedly reading aloud his letter as he's writing it. Mm-hmm. I Lyra. thought we were going to see something where someone in the environment, if not Mrs. Coulter, like basically just like hits the kids. And we realize like, oh, these kids have learned to be demure and quiet right. because mm-hmm. there's a threat of physical violence. Something like that. Because without as that, why are they day. not? Yeah. Without that, why are they not running away? Why are they not making a run for it? Why are they not talking back? Yeah, that is a very that is a good point. I, I, I've been resisting this urge because it's once you open this door. But I've been comparing it in many ways to Game of Thrones, sure, which had some of the same problems for the adapters, for the showrunners, for yeah. the people. I.e., it's a very detailed, different world with a different history and different rules, and so on and so forth. With people you don't know, and you're introduced to, to a lot of them right away. And there's a lot of time spending, like, who the hell are these people and what do they want? But there's and why a, should I care about and why them? why should I care about them? And one of the reasons that, that got answered in Game of Thrones, it may have taken longer than I remember, is that even though the world is weird, people's interactions with each other seem very relatable. I hate you. Um, I, <laughs> I hate you too, Peter. No, well, I yes, I gestured at Greta, but I she was just happened to be in the room. Could have been Justin. I hate you, Justin. There, you feel better. Justin's great. Come on, man. Jesus, we are going to be more upset if you hate Justin Everybody than if you hate quiet, us. Another goddamn opinion. That was what Justin. When That's what you have when you tell the producer. Him. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and, and so, like, like, you know, like to take a Game of Thrones relationship from the very beginning, Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon. You may not understand the history that there was this rebellion. You may not understand where the kingdom is or what he is in relation to him. But you know that they're friends. And this one guy, Baratheon, is making a request that's understandable. Come be my assistant. And the guy feels a loyalty but a, re- a, re- a reticence to go. And you're like, OK, I can buy that. I have no idea where these people are or why they have swords and what's going on. But there's this sort of basic human interaction mm-hmm. that I can follow and even empathize with. And that so far isn't nearly as clear in this. Hmm. Yeah. Where do loyalties lie and why? Is something as a TV viewer, I have much less of a handle on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hers... Like, you know she's affiliated with this super creepy church. Right. But you don't really know what the church is. You know it's a church, but you don't know what kind of church it is. You don't know what they're mainly concerned well, about. Well, you know it's anti-intellectual. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's very well, sort of— Well, is it? Mid- because the only thing they do protect and adhere to the sort of power of is Scholastic Sanctuary. So, right. again, to me as a TV viewer, it is not clear that the mm, church yeah. is yeah. anti-intellectual. It's clear that they protect the 
sort of sanctity of academic study. Well, but it's not clear to me who is allowed to study and who isn't I don't or anything think like they that. They protect the sanctity as much as they have been told they're not allowed in. By who? You know, by school by the college. But then why does the college have equal power if the church is in charge? There was a there was a line, I don't remember from the book, it may have been created for the series, which indicates, uh, I don't remember if it was expository or a conversation, where like the church is run by these competing factions, any one of which might have more influence than any other. Like there's the, and it's all collectively called the magisterium. Mm-hmm. And so that indicates that it's almost like the medieval church in which there are all these centers of power. There are the universities that are a part of it, but are independent of it, that the universities are allowed to do this, but they're not allowed to do that. You know, uh, I mean, remember. You yeah, know. I think there's still law yeah. and law is where scholastic sanctuary is. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, part of the second series is actually the Magisterium trying to get rid of Scholastic Sanctuary. Right. And and what I don't – and we also don't know anything about this world. Is there anybody in charge besides the Magisterium? Is there a no, lay – No, that's it. That's it. Really. The Magisterium yeah, but I don't know that. Yeah. So it's a theocracy. They not only control the church and religion. They also control society. They run it. They're, they're yeah. the civil service. I mean I would say like one way – one reason we have seen in the show that we know it, the church is anti-intellectual is because of that scene when Asriel gives his presentation and they're essentially like this is heresy. Right you're going to go down for this, which is why Azriel leaves immediately the next day because he knows that if he sticks around, he's yes. going to get so, in uh, the, the magisterium is apparently allowing certain kinds of scholarly study, but it has limits and, and the scholars and are aware of the limits. And once you start exploring stuff like dust, right. you're done. Right. And, you know? and whatever dust ends up being, and I literally don't remember, um, <laughs> it is a threat to the magisterium somehow, which is why they're yeah. very unhappy about yeah. it. Yeah. And you know that Boreal doesn't care a whole lot about Scholastic Sanctuary because he still goes down to the crypts without yeah. anybody's yeah, they, permission. I, I think Scholastic Sanctuary is not like an important concept to anybody. Uh, it, it's like the people the, the people <laughs> who use Clark it to Peters. protect them. Yeah, yeah, people pursue yes. it for their own goals or put it aside for their own goals. Well, and it seems like that is maybe why Lyra has, you know, had like a fairly uneventful childhood. Right. At Jordan College. Was Which is, and, or more to the point, why Lord Azrael, who we now know as her father, brought her there. It exactly. Was exactly. Yeah. yeah. But as a TV viewer, I am aware that I'm being told that the church is the villain because of music and lighting and all these other things. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of what they do and don't do to people, it's yeah. very unclear. Yeah. Because yeah. when they go to London, it's not a Handmaid's Tale version of London, right? Like having just come off of reading sure. and spending time in Margaret Atwood's world where yeah. a religious order is in charge. There are all these clear signs of oppression of women, of everyone right. that are not in this London. So if the only thing that the church is afraid of is dust, and I don't know what dust is, then maybe I don't think that it's a bad idea to keep people from, I don't know, understanding something that could destroy the link between worlds or, you know, create chaos or something like that. Like, maybe they are doing it with the best of intentions. And it's actually, you know, like the freedom from and freedom to idea from Margaret Atwood's world sure, sure. can come into play there, I think, in an interesting way, because I haven't been told why the church is bad, except that what? Like, who are they oppressing? Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. see it. There's no there's no visual of it. Right. The outward idea of freedom from versus freedom to being me like in our present day, we don't have freedom from harassment, but we do have freedom to walk in the streets at right. night. Whereas, you know, once you get to Gilead, you do uh, theoretically have freedom from assault, but you right. can't do anything ever. Yes, exactly. Well, that's a fun note to yeah. discuss. Um, how annoyed are you guys that Lyra has not yet figured out how to use the alethiometer? Vaguely annoyed. 
I mean, uh, does that feel spoilery for me to say that to you, Trisha? No, I mean it's it is the golden compass. So I assumed that <laughs> yes, eventually she'll figure it out. And then we had our little shot of it being like, you know, moving. I'm trying to speak to you. Please listen to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've been told this is a MacGuffin. This is a hugely important thing, and it's now been two episodes, and we still have to take. I guess Clark Peters, the master's word for it. Clark Peters being the dude from The Wire and the master of Jordan. Uh, and that's a little bit frustrating. But, you know, I mean, if if I were plotting this out, the alethiometer would suddenly come to life, be able to be used in a moment of great peril, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, to take a, a thousand other examples when, when Harry Potter figures out uh, how to, you know, call forth his Patronus, you know, like there's this terrible moment where the only thing that's going to get him out is the alethiometer. Right. Is how I would plot it. Now, well, I'm and a, I was a little they... surprised that honestly, because how that scene goes, she gets in the fight with yeah. Mrs. Coulter, you know, her demon is attacked by the monkey. Yeah. She finds out Lord Asriel is her father. And that's when she storms back into her room and kind of hides on the other side of the bed and opens it up yes. and yells at it. And right. that's like... You know, like, and I'm pretty sure maybe even in the books that is when it first works for her. Yeah, it's also a little weird that she has completely bought, like, this is an incredibly important thing. And I absolutely need to protect it while still having no idea what it is and and how to use it or what utility it will ever be. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like. Again, she's a child. She's a prepubescent child. (laughs) It's a lot easier to imagine getting frustrated with a thing. And just deciding it's, it's useless and throwing it away rather than saying, no, they gave this to me for a reason. Yeah. It's actually incredibly essential. Not only that I protect it, but that I never let it leave my person. It's a little strange. One of my biggest concerns is how they're – so, yeah, assuming it's not a spoiler to say that Lyra learns how to read the Golden Compass. Yes. One of my biggest concerns is how they are going to show the things she learns when she's looking at those right. – needles spinning around because the movie did a really bad job of that. I don't know if you remember. I don't. But they did like weird animation sequence stuff where she sort of like dives into this hole and like things present in front of it was just very terrible. So I'm a little I'm a little worried about how that's going to go. I'm okay that she hasn't figured it out yet, though, as just a TV viewer, because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of reveals kind of in almost every scene. Yeah. Well, so who you're people okay. are or what what worlds are existing and that kind of thing. So I'm okay with the fact that she hasn't figured it out yet. But I do think that the idea that she wouldn't be spending sort of every spare minute trying to figure it out right. is not my personality exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, what do you mean, Trisha? <laughs> oh, really? I mean, I think I would probably accidentally tear it apart and then I would be like, uh-oh. Uh, should we listen to voicemail? Let's, by all means. Let's hear Allie first because it's very short. And also because it's something that I think a lot of us book nerds can agree with. That wasn't in the book. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the voicemail. Yeah. I mean, it also speaks to a tweet that we got from Dr. Ashley Smith-Hammond, who is abroad. She's on the other side of the pond. And she tweeted us on, I think it was Sunday night, saying, it feels amazing to get the new episode first, but now I have to wait ages for Nerdette Podcast. I can't wait to hear what the Nerdette Podcast crew thought of tonight's episode. The showrunners made some unexpected choices, but we're going with it. Family and I were all in. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. And I, in principle, obviously, they should make changes to the book if it works better as a TV show. Books and TV shows are very, very different. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's really promising. It seems like they're they're trying to build it so that it makes sense in this new format, which right. I'm all about. Yeah. I mean, it's it's 
the choices that you make as a showrunner, uh, when, particularly when you're adapting a very beloved book, uh, must be very complicated because there are certain scenes that you've got to do. Right, right. right. And, but what if you don't? Um, I remember, and this may or may not be relevant, uh, as you know, I did this thing with Craig Mazin from Chernobyl. Oh, yeah. And it, I didn't You did realize, a podcast I did kind a of podcast. like accompanying yeah, the HBO for, show yeah. to talk about uh, Chernobyl. And one of the interesting things was he chose not to do perhaps the most signif- most memorable image of the actual Chernobyl accident, which was the building of the sarcophagus around it. Mm. I mean, if you mm. ask me, like, if I knew two things about Chernobyl, I, I think I haven't said this. Uh, there was an accident and they built this concrete sarcophagus around it to keep it from killing everybody. And he, I asked him, I said, why didn't you do that? He says, that eh, wasn't interesting. Huh. And that, I mean, I, I, I'm like, okay, great. Everybody, these guys should be empowered to make whatever decision yeah. they think. Yeah is uh, going to make for a better TV show. Yeah. And Philip Pullman being executive producer of this series, it feels like whatever they're doing, it's in good hands, right? Yeah, especially with the series being complete, too. I mean, I think that is a big part of it, oh, just given yes. where we've been That's not true. so long ago. It's true. Let's hear another voicemail. Hey, Nerdette and Peter. This is Jonah from Chicago. Uh, last week you played one of my voicemails where I was... Uh, uh, really kind of lukewarm on the show and uh, this past episode was one of my favorite hours of television in a long time really interested to find out more about uh, Mrs. Coulter just because uh, you know she, she shows signs of uh, having a soul despite being pure evil anyway love the show glad it's back you know I wonder I don't know what it was like with Game of Thrones in my memory but I wonder if those of us who have read the book are at a disadvantage right because we know we knew when Mrs. Coulter appeared that she was a villain because she's a villain. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew too, though. Yeah. Well, Ruth Wilson is doing an interesting performance, but she's doing very, like, kid-obvious evil faces a yes. lot. Yeah, no, it's like the umbrage thing. It's like she's obviously, like, creepy. Yeah. Like, that smile is kind of terrifying. Yeah, she doesn't smile with her eyes. Yeah, as much as I am sort of grumbling and needling about little things as is our way Mm -hmm. I am definitely really enjoying it I think even if we weren't recapping it I would still be watching it week to week although I have to say the one thing that I keep being sort of surprised by is how uncomfortable I am with waiting a week to watch another episode of television which I only did with Game of Thrones really because everything else I watch is streaming right I was talking about it's hard to wait I was talking about this with somebody it's I think it's fun especially and hopefully when a show becomes of general interest as happened with Game of Thrones because yeah. then it was exciting it was like oh where are you going I'm having a watch party on Sunday yeah. or, oh wow yeah. did you watch it can I talk to you about it in the morning it's fun it's not earth shaking it's not important Yeah. but if we're going to be sitting in our homes and watching things on screens it's nice to have it as a collective experience that we can then actually talk to each other about it's fun I don't mind it easy for you to say because you know what happens next <laughs> He doesn't know that. I don't yeah, he didn't forget yeah. what dust is. It was, yeah, it was, it was many years is. ago, and I'm an old man. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I called Greta Gretchen. I mean, that's where I am. So, not a big surprise that I forgot. Wrapped up in the body of a short, bald game show host. You know what I'm going to say. We've decided two per episode is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> okay. Of course, we would love to hear what all y'all think. You can record yourself on your little voice memos app on your phone. Say your name, where you're recording from, and what your demon would be. Do this preferably on like a Monday night right after the latest episode. You can record that and then email it to us at nerdetrecaps at gmail.com. 
The show is produced by us with help from Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak, and our theme music was composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. We are at Nerdat Podcast on Twitter. Trisha is Trisha Bobita. I am Greta M. Johnson. Peter Seigel is Peter Seigel, and you can also use the hashtag Nerdat Recaps. Sign up for our newsletter to keep up with the latest good stuff that I am watching and cooking and eating and generally enjoying. You can do that at wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. Which stands for and feminist. Exactly. Thank you, Tricia. <laughs> can we talk about what might have been my favorite moment? Of course. About It gave me yet another reason to desperately want a demon, which is actually from like the last scene when Lyra is on the rooftop and she's just run away from Mrs. Coulter and she's like flipping out. Yeah. And Pan just says, you're very tired. You need to sleep. <laughs> that is peak Greta Johnson. <laughs> really? To enjoy that. Greta Johnson, you just, you just want a little sort of soul creature to I be with you to let you know that it's okay to take a who's nap. who's really soft to every <laughs> once in a while be like, Greta, you're freaking out because you're just very tired. Just you want a Jiminy Cricket go who's sleep. got a pocket full of melatonin. That's what you want. <laughs> exactly. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.